Our desire is uh, that you would uh, so experience the presence of the Lord in each of our services and our, both our worship times, our teaching times, that it would lead you to become more and more um, in love with Jesus, but also a committed follower of Christ. And part of what we want you to do is to use these encounters with God to take you deeper and to give you more and more motivation or inspiration to dig deeper into what God is speaking to you about your life. And so I just want to echo what Danny was sharing with you. This tool is a helpful tool to look at your life and say, where am I full and where am I empty? And wherever your emptiness is coming from, it's going to affect every other area of your life. And 2018, I really believe the Lord is speaking over you as an individual, speaking over us as a church, saying, I'm coming to you in my fullness. And He wants you to have that kind of bucket that can contain that. And one of the key buckets that we want to talk about today is the bucket of connections. That, that without healthy connections, your life cannot be full. And it, it's the default setting of of our God, that you would live in fullness, that you would experience flourishing in your life. And so when you are unsatisfied or dissatisfied with God, you cannot glorify God. God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in Him. A miserable people do not glorify God. A fake it till you make it people do not glorify God. It is a genuine filling and overflowing that glorifies God. And so we're going to look at one of Jesus' major teachings today about connection from his greatest sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you look with me at your, your bulletin, uh, the text is right there. We're going to look at Luke's version of the sermon, and we're going to look at this specific section on connection. So I like it when you read God's Word. It's kind of a lengthy passage, so if you get tired, just drop out for a while and come back. There are no hard words here, I don't think. So let's try this together. Let's read God's Word. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father merciful. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. 
Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, only one of you said amen because the rest of you were paying attention. This is a tough passage. And none of us live this out, do we? If you do, you're a liar. If you say you do, you're a liar. (laughs) Jesus made the crowd so mad with this text. He made them so angry. Let me, let me tell you what, why he made them so angry. You see, in religious or philosophical circles, you tend to teach by what's called the law of contradictions. So you make a statement, and then you posit a contradictory statement. And you teach the, the truth by the contradiction, in a sense, or by the, by the uh, opposite, in a way. And so what the rabbis had done... For many, many years as they had taught this truth, and it's, it's the second great commandment, and is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that love your neighbor as yourself is a pretty, it's a pretty broad kind of teaching. And so what the rabbis started doing is they started narrowing what love was, and they narrowed down to what the, who the neighbors were. And neighbors became people who liked you, people who looked like you, people who thought like you, people who believed what you did, people you basically agreed with. And so then they posited next to this, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. As much as you love your neighbors, have that much hate for your enemies. So you notice, what does Jesus do at the beginning of this teaching? He goes, but... It's a big but right there. Okay? But I say to you, love your enemies. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Because they had been able to fulfill the religious kind of commandment or requirement. I can love those who love me. I can love those who are good to me. But how are you saying i got to love those who are my enemies? Ah. This is getting a little rough here. So part of it is, we've got to go back and look. What is Jesus trying to do with this sermon? What's he trying to create? And I, I think it's this. When Jesus starts the sermon, he starts it with, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart. He speaks about blessedness. And when he talks about blessedness, you can actually... You, you can actually translate as that word is happy. But for many of us, what happy is, is kind of a temporary sort of sense of, 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 of you know, circumstantial joy or whatever it is. And so the word happy is somewhat corrupted. And so a lot of us don't use the word happy, but we don't really know what the word blessed means either. You go up to a Christian who's going through, you know, divorce, their house just got hit by a tree, and uh, their car doesn't run anymore, and you go, how you doing? I'm blessed. <laughs> and you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're lying. You know, even that word, we don't even know. So, so part of what Jesus is trying to do, and what we need to listen to, is he's trying to restore what you've lost. He's trying to restore... Maybe what we've never, ever had. 
He's trying to speak into you as a follower of Christ. And he's trying to speak into us as the church of this day and say, I want a community that looks like my kingdom. I want a community that really has justice. I want a community that really exhibits unconditional love. I want a community of supernaturally changed people, not just religious compulsion or duty or obligation, but people who flow with my love. And when that flow is there, when the buckets are full and we're connecting with one another, Jesus is teaching, that's when heaven is closest to earth and earth is closest to heaven. And the responsibility of that manifestation of this society, of the community, is not the government's. And it's not the schools or any other, the businesses. It's ours. It's us. It's the believer's. I don't know if I can get this across to you as well as I want to, but I lived in Atlanta when Atlanta was exploding in population. And so everybody was building. They were building subdivisions. They were building you know, houses and everything. And you would see this, this development you know, where they had the pipes sticking out and, and slabs and different things and all going at once. And people would come in and they would want to, you know, buy a house in that subdivision. It would have a pool or it would have a tennis court or whatever. And, and, and the, the house they would want to buy. And they would come in and they would buy a house. But what happened, and it, you'll see it if you ever go to Atlanta, is everybody bought the same house. So the subdivision will be whatever the builders built to show the people what the house would look like. That's what all the houses look like. The builders would have 20 plans, but they only built three of them. And people wouldn't buy what they couldn't see. Are you hearing me? So everybody built the same stupid-looking house. And so the subdivisions look ridiculous because it's the same house three times again and again and again and again because people have no imagination for that which they cannot see. What Jesus is trying to say is the world will not know justice. It will not know love unless we build it, unless we embody it, unless we become it, that, that you can't just live an individualistic life trying to take care of yourself and just your family. You have, you have a connection to the bigger community of Jesus. And your fullness will not be found in self-protection. It will not be found in your own self, you know, guarding and, and hoarding and self-centeredness. It will only be found as you become a person who gives yourself away. And so that that community begins to manifest. And guess what happens? When the beauty of the community of the king is manifest, people want to buy into the subdivision. Because they can't imagine what they can't see. And you're to be that, you're to be that vision. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is that when your cup is overflowing, there's enough for other people. There's enough for others to receive. So Jesus doesn't want us to be individualistic about it, but he also doesn't want a community that's moralistic. See, the issue with so many people is when they read the words of Jesus, they say he's a great teacher, he's a great moral 
philosopher, whatever they want to say, the truth is there is no way to live out what Jesus is asking you to live without a supernaturally changed heart. This is not a sorority. It's not a fraternity. It's not a nonprofit organization. It is a supernatural community that can only be lived out by people whose hearts have been transformed by the grace and the love of God. And he's asking for from us here is not something he can ask from you in your flesh. It's something he has asked for from your spirit. Now, so the teaching here, what Jesus does is he's, he does something really interesting. Now, <laughs> it doesn't mean that what we're about to say doesn't apply to your marriage or your family or your friends or whatever it does. It does apply. I mean... You know, love your enemies can apply to your marriage any day. Uh, <laughs> love your enemies can apply to your family a lot of days, you know. Uh, but he primarily is doing three case studies that are about loving people outside your own circle of intimacy. He's, he's detailing for us three groups of people that you would not in any natural way, even be in relationship with. So the first of the three is, he says, love your enemies. Now, he, he defines the enemies really in, in two different ways. He defines the enemies as someone who has ill will against you. For example, um, it's commonplace that there are people who speak badly about you behind your back. There are people who have it out for you. Maybe even for no reason other than they, that's just who they are. Or it also could be that Satan has planted them in your life to persecute you. So Jesus says there are people who have ill will. They speak, they speak badly about you. They speak falsely about you. They have no, no need whatsoever to be truthful. And they enjoy actually insulting you. So they have ill will towards you. And he said, then there's a second group of people who have struck you. These are the people who have hurt you. They have betrayed you. They have, they have literally done something that has harmed you. And so Jesus says, whether it's people who have ill will towards you or it's people who have actually hurt you, I want you to love them. I want you to love them. <laughs> Can you imagine being the first group of people to hear this? And you're thinking, oh my goodness, these people have no right to my love. I've loved those who love me. I'm loyal to those who love me. Now, I mean, think about your, your, your default setting, my default setting. Maybe this is just me. But I mean, I grew up and I said, I don't start fights, but I finish them. <laughs> you know, you did that to me. Do you know who I am? You know, kind of a thing. I'm going to make you pay for this. You will never treat me like that again. See, that's hating your enemy. That's, that's saying, I love those who love me. I mean, how many of us say, my friends, they, I have their back. You know, I'm loyal to my friends. My, my friends can always count on me. You see, that's loving those who love you. There's loyalty, there's coverage, there's, there's resources available to them. But don't ever cross me. You know, fool me once, shame on, on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, because I'm going to let you have it. So, are you tracking with me on this? You understand, that's your default setting. Whether you were ever taught it by a rabbi or not, 
Your thinking is, I love those who love me. Jesus says, look, what credit is there for, to you if you love those who love you? Even sinners love those who love them. He says, the only way that anybody knows this is a supernatural community is if you love those who hurt you. If you love those who have ill will towards you. And not only that, I mean, Jesus, is, it's rough to follow Jesus. He says, he says, I want you to forgive them. No, wait a minute, I, I, I want to hold on to this anger a little longer. <laughs> you know why he says forgive them? Because forgiveness is for you, not for them. See, you forgive somebody, they probably don't change. They might keep up doing that, you know, for a long time. Forgiveness is about you and God having a clear channel. It's about your heart being free. <laughs> it's about you not being the fool who drinks poison thinking it'll kill somebody else. You know? But then he says something else. Don't just forgive them. I'm like, like, if I don't ever see them again, I probably can forgive them. <laughs> then he says, pray for them. Bless them. I can tell you I've followed this at times. This is, oh, God, please let them be hit by a bus. <laughs> Only a few of you are honest this morning. <laughs> let them die an early death. You know, oh, God bless them with a hand grenade that goes off right now. You know? I'm the only one that's honest in this room right now. Some of you, you know what you do, you hide, you go, I don't hate them, I just don't like them. Come on, stop, just go there. <laughs> Set yourself free. Because once, see, what happens is once you hear out loud you're, you're praying for their demise, you realize that's not love. See, if you, don't, if you don't get this honest, what you'll do is you'll hear something about them and somebody's complaining, you're like, oh yeah, what did they do? They did what? Oh, they did that to me too. And all of a sudden, you're, I don't hate them. I'm just destroying them piece by piece. <laughs> Come on. Get honest. Quit being... I mean, God already knows how much you hate people. He knows. There's nothing that you can hide from them. And he says, pray for them. Why does he say pray? Because, you see, you stop being a victim when you start praying for them. And you become an actor. You become active. Instead of being the recipient of all their vile and all that, you step up and you say, wait a minute. I have a position, I have a standing with God where I can pray for this person. And guess what happens? When you start to pray in the presence of God, you stop hating people. Because then he, you're, you're receiving His grace and His mercy for you, and you can't, in that grace and mercy, then ask for law and judgment on them. See, a grudge says you have a right to God's love. And you don't. A grudge says, bitterness says, I want justice for them, but I want grace for me. You see, when you get into praying for a person, you come out from under their curse and you get over it. And you begin to step in. And then when you begin to bless them, you, realize, you start to realize, I'm not under this. I'm under Christ. I'm not under the law. I'm not under judgment. I'm under grace. I'm free. It was for freedom that Christ set me free. 
But see, if you just, you just stay inactive, passive, giving yourself over to bitterness, unforgiveness, you begin to wish ill for that person, then you're still under their curse. And you're still under the pain of what they've done to you. Come out from under it, Jesus says. Forgive them. Stand up to the situation and pray for them. Bless them. Die with no enemies in your life. You'll only be able to do that supernaturally. You'll only be able to do that if you understand the grace of God. You guys got really quiet on me just now. So the second group is also a very interesting the way that Jesus unpacks this case study. He's basically talking about how you connect to people who are less fortunate than you. He says, there are people who will come up to you, and it's not that they're going to steal your shirt. They don't have a shirt And they're asking for your shirt. That's the way really the text unfolds. It's not that they come and they take it away. They rob you or they steal it from you. And then you go, okay, since you took my shirt, here's my coat too. It's the idea that there are people in in your vicinity. There are people who aren't your friends. There are people who have no real right of approach to you. But they are without. They don't have. And he's saying he wants you to live such a life that this kind of what one writer calls promiscuous generosity characterizes you. And and what this means is that, that you have such a sense of the resources that are yours because you are a child of God that that you never have the sense that I have something, I have to hold on to it because I'll never have it again. This is my one, this is my shirt. Don't take my shirt. This is, this is my good coat. You know, I finally got a name brand coat at Burlington or wherever, you know. And, and, and you want my coat? I, 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 uh, because I, I think that's all I have. My, my son was little. He was about five years old or so. I started giving him an allowance. And we were living in Costa Rica. And we went downtown Costa Rica so he could spend his coins. And immediately upon coming to the city square, there were beggars everywhere. And he took his bag of coins and he gave every single one of them to the first beggar. And, you know, as a dad, I'm sitting there going, son, do you really want to do that? Do you want to give everything to this person? He said, it's okay, dad, you have more. (laughs) You see, most of us don't live like that. We live like this bag is the only bag I have. Jesus is really asking something so radical here, so profound. He's saying that you would not make another financial decision in your life without thinking how it will affect your generosity. That even when you're going to, let's say you're going to buy a sofa, you need a new sofa. And instead of just saying, I want the best sofa, I want the most expensive sofa, I want the sofa that's going to make everybody think I am the sofa queen of the world, you know? Instead of that, you think, wait a minute, if I buy this, will I still have money to be generous to others? If I get this, will it inhibit and limit me now to where I cannot give to those who don't have sofas? Well, this teaching messes with your your head if you have been broken, deprived, if you haven't been healed in the place of generosity. 
Because the idea of being promiscuously generous goes against most of us in a big way. For example, uh, Lisa and I were uh, having a vacation down on the shore, and uh, we were in Ocean Grove, and I went into a convenience store, and as I went into the convenience store, this woman comes up to me, and she goes, give me money! And I'm like, I'm not giving you money. (laughs) You know, and that... Granted, her approach was really bad, but, but the way she did it, I'm like, you don't deserve my money. This is my money. I worked hard for this money. You know, all kinds, and you're just going to spend it on drugs and alcohol and whatever else. And I, and I just immediately shut down and ran into the convenience store and acted like I didn't hear it. Whereas if a friend of mine comes and says, I don't have enough money to get home, I don't have enough money for gas, I'll empty my pockets for them. Now, I have no money in my pockets today. But if a friend comes, I would, I would do that because of, their, of the relationship, the approach. I am just blown away with the Lord Jesus who said, why did I run away from that woman just because she irritated me or she scared me or because she approached me wrong or she smelled bad? You know, instead of being in that moment like Jesus, I was just like every other sinner. And then he started speaking to me this morning and, he woke me up at 5.30, and he took me back 20 years. And he took me back to something I did, a decision that I made 20 years ago, in which I was completely just self-centered and selfish, and I was going to do it my way, and I wasn't going to do it any other way. And he showed me really clearly that it's still an access point for the enemy to attack my financial security. Because I do not have promiscuous generosity. I have very limited and strategic generosity. And today I've just been repenting before the Lord. I, you know, I've gotten to where I can pray for my enemies and I'm not praying that they have a hand grenade or hit, get hit by a bus. I can truly pray for them. I can truly forgive them. I, but I, as I'm listening to Jesus' heart on this matter, I like to control my own money. I like to think I can get whatever I want and no one can stop me. As a matter of fact, he really, really touched me today because um, over the Christmas holidays, I, got, I drove a rental truck. It was a Ford F-150 with this amazing engine, and I was bigger and taller than everybody in the South. You know, ever since, I've been lusting after this thing, you know? And I'm telling Lisa, I'm like, can we just get that? Can we get, you know, can we, can we buy that? You know, can we get that thing? And the Lord said, look, what would it do if you go out and you just get that? And I started thinking about all the places that would take money away from, <laughs> especially the gas I would have to get every day. <laughs> and, and, I, and it's a whole thing. It's not that the Lord doesn't want you to have a nice car. It's not that he doesn't want you to have a good house or, or wear good clothes or any of those things, but he always wants you to think, if I buy this, will I still have the ability to give to those who do not have? Or will I now be in bondage to keep up my image, to keep up you know, my, my, my standard of living, my cost of living? And, and what he's basically saying here is, one way is the way to freedom and fullness. Because if the whole pipeline of your resources is coming from heaven, it's a limitless supply. But if the pipeline is just what I can hoard and keep 
and control, then it's a very limited supply. And it's only based on how much you can earn. And so Jesus says, if they come up to you and they want your shirt, give it to them. But then take off your coat too and give that to them too. Do you understand? Nobody in their own strength can do this. And no community would teach you to do this. Is this making sense to you? <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, I wish I hadn't come to this. <laughs> the third group is, um, is equally complex. What Jesus speaks of here is that there are people outside of your circle who can do nothing for you. They can't make you more socially status, social status. They can't in any way make you richer or more popular. They can't in any way make everybody else look at you and your connection with them and, 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 and say, oh, look, wow, what a wonderful, awesome person this person is. It's, it's the sense that all of us have that when we walk into a room, we look around and we say, are these people my people? Are these my kind of people? And it could be cultural, it could be racial, it could be socioeconomic, it could be any, any number. It could just be the clothes that they wear and the, and the style that they have, whatever it is. But you look and you say, will these people do anything for me? Will they advance my career? Will they make my status greater? And Jesus says, if, if that's the way you look at people, he says, if you look at people like that, you don't know love at all. He says, when you think about only serving people who can serve you, you're not serving. You're self-serving. When you're only thinking about, what will I get out of this if I give this? Then basically what Jesus is saying is you have a love deficit. And you don't know how to fill the bucket of connection. Everything is basically a negotiation. The people in your life are in your life just because they have something to contribute to your life. Now, the problem with a lot of people who are religious and the way this shakes out in religious circles is basically I'm comfortable with people who agree with me. I'm comfortable with people who behave like me. I'm comfortable with people who have all the kind of the same ba you know, background. <laughs> I was going to call it baggage, but you know. <laughs> As me, you know, and so I want to be with people who make me look like I'm moral, that I'm good, that I have value. And Jesus said, anybody that lives like that is not of the Father. Not of the Father. I mean, think about it with me. When Jesus went to the cross, did he get any social status out of that? When he came to save you? When he who knew no sin became sin for you, did he get any psychological self-esteem out of that? He did that because you were so lost. You were so lost that he had to die for you. But you're so loved that he chose to die for you. But he got nothing out of that except a broken you. I mean, when you think through that, and then you think about how... I live thinking, okay, if I give this person my time, then maybe it'll advance my career. Or I give this person my time, maybe it'll advance my hobby. Or 
I give this person my time, maybe it'll advance you know, my own self-esteem in some way. And Jesus says, well, sinners do that, friends. Sinners do that with other sinners. They lend to people who are going to pay them back. They hang out with people who can make them feel better about themselves, he says, but not you. Not you. You're going to give to those who can't give back to you. And you're going to do it not even expecting to get it back. <laughs> Might cost you. I was mentoring a guy when I was in Atlanta. A young guy, a freshman or sophomore at Tacoma Falls College, which is a Bible college type thing. And uh, I was meeting with him, and, and he told me a story. He said um, every week he takes his Bible, and he goes to a place called Huddle House. And I don't know if you know Huddle House, but Huddle House is the worst cousin of Waffle House. And Waffle House will kill you. Okay, so it's grease multiplied, you know. So he takes this place to Huddle House. So it's kind of like the, like the lowest socioeconomic, just, I mean, the food is horrible but cheap. And they smoke in there, okay. So he's at this very, you know, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls that do college. And, uh, and he takes his Bible and he starts ministering to this group of people, and they start coming to Christ. And so he starts discipling this group of people. But when he comes back to the college, he smells like cigarette smoke. And his Bible even smelled of cigarette smoke. And they, they began to punish him at the college because they said, you're lying, you're smoking cigarettes, it's against the rules, and they started punishing him and stuff, and he just kept doing it because he said, these people need me, they need the gospel, they want, and after a while, I started thinking about, uh, about this whole thing of ministering to people who can do nothing for you and who might even cost you, and I, I used to say, what does your Bible smell like? Because here is, the, here is this guy, and he's, he's paying a price He's being ostracized by his own church. He's being, he's being condemned by his own school for doing what Jesus told him to do. And the problem with many of us is, is that when we do serve like that, we serve in a kind of superiority. Oh, there but for the grace of God go I. I want to punch people when they say that. You know, because I'm like, you are that. You are that. You are that lost. You are that sinful. You are that needy. You are that desperate. Do you not get it? It is not just for the grace of God. It's grace. And it's awesome. And it's beautiful. And it's wonderful. And it's worth paying the price for people who can do nothing for you because your Savior paid the price for you who can do nothing for Him. See, I think, friends, that if you love these three groups of people, you'll be a great lover of the people who actually love you. Because if you have enough for these, you have enough for those. Are you hearing me today? Now, I want to finish up with this aspect of it, okay? Will you track with me? Stay with me just a little bit on this. So how in the world do I love like this? I mean, I can't produce this kind of love. 
if they really are my enemies, I can produce hate for them, but I can't produce love for them. And people who are less fortunate than me, sometimes it feels like all they want is to take from me and they just seem kind of toxic. Or these people who are outside of my circle to go search for people that are different from me in order to be friends with. I was watching um, one of my favorite theologians, a Scottish theologian, I was watching him give a lecture. It was an amazing lecture on the Sermon on the Mount. It was so beautiful and I was weeping as I was watching it and they would cut to the crowd. And it was nothing but old white people. Rich, old white people. Because they were probably the only ones who could afford to go to the conference. And they're sitting there, and I, I, I guess they were attentive, but they were just so chosen frozen. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, here's this amazing, awesome, incredible truth about the love that Jesus is calling you to. And the room is filled with people who are exactly alike, from exactly the same socioeconomic background, from the same tribe, from the same culture. And I'm sitting there going, this truth should express itself in something radically different from what's in that crowd. How does it go from being theory to reality? Well, there's only, there's only one way, friends. And, and this is the thing that you got to get. When Jesus says over and over again, what credit is it when a sinner lends to another sinner and they get their money back? What credit is it if you love someone that loves you back? Because then sinners do that too. He's not saying that you get points for this. What he's saying is that everything of your life, everything about your life has to now be characterized by the fact that you live in the grace and the mercy of God. Now, I'm going to take this a step further. I know the music's playing, so I've got to talk fast. I'm going to take this a step further, okay? There's no other place in the Bible but the Sermon on the Mount. There's no other place where God is called Father as many times as the Lord Jesus speaks. He says, your Father, your Father in heaven, our Father who art in heaven. He says it over and over again. It's not... In all of the Old Testament, you never see it that many times. There's some similes, there's some metaphors about him being father, but there's no address to him as father. And then even the apostles don't speak of it as much as Jesus did. But here's what that means, friends. It means that the reason there is not this kind of love in your heart or my heart, or there's not this kind of community of justice and love is because we are disconnected from our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven is love. He's the source of love. You see, if I'm connected to my fathers by biology, then all I'm going to be is a racist. If I'm connected to my culture and my, my education, and my whatever uh, background I come from, then I become an exclusivist or an elitist because I start trying to protect what they have deserved or what they have earned or what they're made of. And if you're, you know, you're trying to get what we have or what you have, whatever, you become a competitor for the same resources. It's only when you and I recognize we're no longer in our biology we're not even in our culture anymore. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father. 
That we not only have access, therefore, to all His resources, but we're intimate with Him. He is love. He doesn't just have love. He is love. And through that connection, me as a son, you as a daughter, coming in together, we begin to see the commonality. You're your father's favorite. I love having an infinite father. See, in my family, if my father had a favorite, all the others got left out. In the heavenly family, because he is infinite, he can treat you like you're the favorite while he's treating every single one of us like we're the favorite. See, this is what Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to get you to realize the problems of race, the problems of culture, the problems of the scarcity of our resources. All of this, Jesus says, is because we're disconnected from our Father. And then he says, the remedy is to reconnect through the Son to the Father. That we join in by faith in Jesus Christ. We join in to the love the Father and Son have shared for eternity. And then that love begins to fill our buckets, fill our cup, fill our hearts so that there's overflow. So not only do we love people who love us, we start to be able to love people who hate us. We love people who have nothing that they can give to us. We love people who need so much from us because we are connected to the Father. Are you hearing me in this? Here's how Jesus, you see, (laughs) they got upset with Jesus about this. And they kept going at him and they said, look, look, you're defining this whole love thing too widely and you're making this neighbor thing too much, too much. We want our neighbors just to look just like us. We want them to be the same culture, same race, same tribe, all this stuff. And, and, Jesus, and so they kept going at him and saying, just, just tell us who our neighbor is. And Jesus being so wise, he tells them a parable. He says, let me, well, I'm going to let you define neighbor. And he says, there's a man, a Jewish man, who's robbed, who's beaten, bloodied, and left for dead. So, uh, you know, uh, a righteous man walks by him, and because he's bloody and, and unclean, the righteous man passes on the other side. A priest walks by him, a rabbi walks by him, and they're, they're busy going off. Oh, wait, I gotta, I gotta go worship, I gotta go worship, I can't handle this. And then this 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 unclean Samaritan who's unclean because of his heritage, who's unclean because of his biology, his Samaritan comes and picks this bloodied man up, takes him to an inn, pays for his keep, gives enough money for medicine and everything else, and then comes back after what he has to do, comes back, checks on him, makes sure that this man is okay. And then Jesus looks at these who are questioning him and says, tell me which one of those four were a neighbor. So instead, he flipped the situation from who is my neighbor to who is being a neighbor. But that's not the end of that story. You know what Jesus was really saying? Jesus saying, he's the good Samaritan. He found you bloodied, beaten, in bondage to sin, given over to death, given over to Satan, and he picked you up, 
and he gave you his status. He made you who were not who were not sons and daughters. He made you sons and daughters. He gave you his righteousness. You who are not holy, who are not righteous. He covered your bloodiness in his righteousness. He took your robe off of you, of your flesh, and he put his robe on you of his righteousness. And he healed you by his own stripes. And he's coming back for you. Who's your neighbor? What's your community? Will you stand with me? Don't let this day go by without reconnecting to your Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, I work too hard for you not to. I'm sweating like crazy up here. Are you hearing me? I mean, this is so beautiful. I, don't, I would say today, for me, this is like one of the pearls of my life. And I don't want to cast it into the mud. Because you see, if you and I, if we can get this, if we can become that community that Jesus envisioned, then the world can see that there's a love that is greater. Some people can't see the cross because they can't see you and the love that you should have because of the cross. Because you and I get under our pain. We get under our hate. We get under our bitterness instead of getting over it through prayer and blessing. Because he went to the cross and he forgave you, you can forgive and receive forgiveness. You can live in the Father's love every day. Just like my son said, my daddy has more. You can let it go. Can you hear me today? Loving those who hurt you. Loving and giving to those who have less than you. Loving those who can do nothing for you. Becoming a person of promiscuous generosity. Lord, will you seal what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day off tomorrow. God bless you. We'll see you next week.